Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Well, this is it, the last episode of Season 2. I hope that you've had a chance to check out all the creationists I've interviewed so far. If not, consider this an open invitation to go back and check out previous episodes. And while this is Episode 7 of Season 2, you might also consider it Episode 1 of Season 3, which I'll be launching later this fall. You see, Season 3 is going to be music-themed, with guests talking about music-related subjects from all angles, including Gordon Lightfoot talking about songwriting, recording engineer and producer Susan Rogers talking about working with Prince, and director Ron Mann discussing his documentary Carmine Street Guitars. These are just a few of the surprises I have lined up and recorded for the next season, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so that you get the episodes as soon as they're released. And now, let's push play and get on with creating album artwork with Hugh Syme. Hugh Syme is easily Canada's most successful and recognizable album cover designer. If for some reason you don't know his name, you'll definitely recognize the work he's created for some of the world's biggest artists, including the band Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Earth, Wind & Fire, and Celine Dion, to name just a few. In 1993, Hugh designed the now iconic cover for Aerosmith's mega-platinum album, Get a Grip. I I knew that nipple rings were pretty in vogue at the time, and I don't know why. I just sort of said, why don't we just have a a cow udder? We'll brand the name of Aerosmith on the hip of the cow. We'll just put a nipple ring in the cow udder. The room went silent, and I thought I'd blow on it. And suddenly, Kalana said, I like that. I really like that. So I did it as a result of that uh, vote of confidence from John. Over the course of a career that's now spanned 45 years, Hugh has been nominated for 19 Juno Awards. And much of his work has been featured in volumes of coffee table books that highlight many of the world's best album covers. But it's his relationship with Canadian rockers Rush that solidified Hugh's reputation. He has designed every Rush album cover since 1975's Caress of Steel. So the natural place to start a conversation was asking, how did his relationship with Rush even begin? I was in a band on the same label with same management as Rush and Max Webster and Larry Gowan's project, I think. Um, was on at the same time. And I was doing covers for Max and for Ian Thomas, my my band. And I was called into the principal's office. Ray Daniels was the manager. He called me in and asked me if I'd like to do a Rush cover. And I remember distinctly thinking, well, they're not not Genesis or King Crimson or anything. So, but yeah, why not? I'll give them a shot. You know, not realizing um, that 42 years later, Neil Peart would... Uh, coined the phrase serving a life sentence, um, which became the subtitle of my, my eventual book called the art of rush. But yeah, it was, um, kind of an unwitting commitment and it turned into a beautiful friendship and musical friendship, artistic collaboration and, uh, a lengthy loyal alliance. Well, let, let's talk about that. It started with caressive steel. What is the collaboration process like? And was it a collaboration from the very beginning? No, at, most of my career, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like most art directors. I'm selfish. I want to be creative in my own right. And at the beginning, I think the band was kind of unaccustomed to what it took to do artwork for their careers. You know, they, they were in the early stages of kind of finding their way, as was I. Um, the one thing I liked about Rush, and it was, I really think it was an unwitting 
feature of our relationship that would endure for our career. They didn't know that in their early stages they were deviating from the norm as often as they could. They didn't. They didn't want a logo. Uh, well, the, the management wanted a logo. They they liked the idea of having a an Aerosmith or a Van Halen type logo. And I was thinking, I like when a band just creates the concept that's you know uh, commensurate with the title or some reflects the title. And the band's information, and I think I took my cue from Pink Floyd and people like that who didn't have a logo, but they would have concept covers. And each time a cover would would surface, it would have its own identity, its own font or its own type treatment. So in the early stages, I just was left to do my own thing. Um, I still had to describe what I was about to do when I mentioned that I liked the idea of men moving pictures for moving pictures. Sometimes these kind of glib uh, or seemingly glib comments, which I could immediately see and picture for myself were met with a bit of confusion or, or resistance even, but I often had to say, trust me, this is going to be cool. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, it was certainly a courtesy, you know, extended to the band to describe what was, you know, what my intentions were. But in the very beginning, a caress of steel, twenty-one twelve. There was no expectations. I was sort of left to do the artwork, and then I I would deliver it, and would never presume that they wouldn't like it. But so far, they never they never resisted or or sent me back to the drawing board. Uh, collaboration began, you know, as we had more and more discussions about the content of the lyrics, and you know, because at the very beginning, it would just be responding to the title, and I always did feel spoiled with Neil. Um, he was brilliant at coming up with great titles, signals, counterparts, you know, hold your fire. Every time he would come up with a title, it was unlike any other band. It just had imagery built into the words. So I was, you know, I was spoiled and I had an op- and I was also trusted by the band to do what I needed to do. Very few bands would have endorsed putting a nut and a bolt on an album cover for a title like counterparts, but um, I admittedly was inspired by the minimalism, the brave minimalism that you would see on Discipline or Beat by King Crimson. So I, I thought it was time to do a cover like that, for example, with with Rush. But so, eventually, yeah. it became became full full fledged dialogue, and and yet I was given, you know, I st- I would listen and I would, you know, uh, go through the process of discussing themes and arcs and. On, but I still went away and, and asked for the freedom to to present what I think might work. I was never dictated to, which was great. So, can you give give us an example of uh, this discussion when you talk about you know themes or arc of an album? What you would be given, and then what you would go away, and were there would there be multiple multiple versions of concepts that you would present to them or multiple no, versions I, of concepts you'd go through yourself? I didn't do, you know, what we're considering, you know, especially in the advertising world, I didn't do comps. I didn't do renderings and proposals. You know, a lot of that was done in conversation. I mean, there was, Neil was always very visual and we would get through it without having to kind of do, and I would have a book handy and sketch things to kind of indicate kind of a rough idea. And it, you know, I, I admit to the fact that I was never like a diehard fan, so I didn't delve into the lyrics and become kind of an Iron Rand freak, and and you know, and and become kind of in, entrenched in in the the fandom of being a Rush devotee. 
So a lot of times I would take the title. I didn't read lyrics as intently as I did until the CD came along, at which point suddenly one front cover became, you know, while we lost the 12 inch canvas, we, we gained 12 or 16 or 20. And in the case of Rush, often 40 canvases in the form of the many pages in a CD booklet. So then it became evident to me that I could harvest imagery from specific lyrics, which is what Neil and I eventually enjoyed doing together. We would, we would pick the most poignant visual that seemed to be um, re- reflective or editorialize the the words. But in the beginning, I would you know I would get a title like Moving Pictures and never really read the lyrics, and I would do the cover based on that that reaction. Same with Signals. It wasn't until we got into CDs that I started getting more serious about reading the content. Even 2112, I think the only conceptual conversation we had was about the, you know, the the resistance of the Federation to, to personal, ex, you know, expression, freedom of expression, and how there was the, the you know, the, the red star of the Federation, and then there was the hero, and I thought, well, we will have the hero pushing the red star away. It was it was very literal, but little did I know that became kind of the icon. That uh, it was again, it was an unwitting and sort of uh, perhaps accidental, but pretty effective icon that endured for until now. I'm always curious about moments of inspiration, and I'm wondering if you remember the moment that you thought of having that man there pushing the star. Um, I sort of do. Much like, and, and it wasn't really, you know, I, w- I was thinking about the fact that being creative, you, you are pure, you you are who you are, and it felt wrong to just kind of put a guy in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. I thought it would be much more pure to have this human individual, this creative soul, you know, pushing this this mean uh, star, red star of the Federation away. And it was really just that when I heard about the constrictions of that federation and the, you know, the challenges of, of those that want to remain free and creative. I, it was kind of literal. I thought we, we need to have that confrontation and that confrontation just manifested itself in the naked guy pushing away the, the bad, bad star. A similar kind of reaction occurred on hemispheres. You know, we had, we had sort of Dionysius and Apollo kind of characters and it say, it seemed right that the dancer be, naked as opposed to just some guy in tights, you know, but, you know, I think I, I really don't remember beyond that, how those things occurred to me. I think that pretty much describes what I probably was feeling. For, for Cress of Steel, was that image um, drawn specifically for the album? Did you have that image beforehand? And No, I never had pre-existing images for Rush. I have admittedly done artwork throughout my career where I don't stand still as an artist. I like to be creative. And if I'm not working on an album cover at a given moment, I'm also thinking of art galleries and other, you know, other uh, avenues that my art is seen. Um, But in the case of Rush, no, it was always very specific. And at that time I was, I was just fresh out of art school. I'd missed seeing MC Escher by just a matter of months and he died not long after that, but I was a huge Escher fan. I, I, I enjoyed, and I grew up drawing. I, drawing was important to me, and pencil work, you know, 
my father was instrumental in gently instructing me to the fact, because he was a great draftsman himself. He drew, he was a pulp and paper engineer, but he, he drew beautifully. Um, I actually found some nudes of my mom that he had done, and they were, they were beautiful. And when I would do a drawing, I would get it. I understood light and shadow and shading, and I would do a section of the drawing that really worked, and he would see the drawing and say, this is beautiful, this is great. And, and then he would point to the periphery and say, so we're still working on this, aren't we? And he would that was his kind way of saying, you're not done. But he wasn't like some kind of tennis coach dad that was you know sending me back into my my room to finish the work i felt i felt that he was right and i felt that um the process did require more more uh, commitment and through that he did teach me commitment and and patience and uh, diligence and now i'm a workaholic which is all good but drawing wasn't something that you could do. I discovered in a couple of days or one afternoon, it sometimes took six weeks to finish a drawing. So I wanted to bring that level of, of my then skill set to bear on a rush cover. I didn't, I didn't do the chrome lettering and the blue balloon that went around it, nor did I shift the color to that brown sepia. It was intended to be a graphite, a very kind of Escher-esque cover. But the the lesson learned in that whole experience was that AGI and Mer- then Mercury Records felt that the the artwork was just a bit too retiring and too elegant, and they wanted something more more rock and roll. So they took it upon themselves to develop those elements, and we were all a bit shocked. And that's the point at which Rush said to most efforts by A and R on the on the label level to to not feel welcome into the studio when they were doing their music and by the same token they wanted me to be at every press check and they wanted they wanted management and, and label to leave me alone and leave the band and I alone while we did what we did and again you know that that put us both into a pretty unlikely arena where labels really do like to have a hand in what what a band what the traje- trajectory of a band's career we all got to be we all got to express ourselves as we felt appropriate for that pro- for those projects and for that that entity known as Rush. So yeah, it was a lesson learned, but it was you know it was I don't look at that cover with disgust. I just I just don't particularly care for the fact that it was in, invaded by uh, outside forces. Well, it really seems to me I'm looking at all the album covers in sequence that your a style for you really emerged that, uh, you know, I, I was going to, my next question actually was going to be what inspired, what inspired you with regards to the artwork for 2112, because I felt like I, I'm thinking back to when Hemispheres came out, that it was very, it seemed to be very much a graphic that would have been inspired by hypnosis and the stuff that they were doing with Pink Floyd. But then eventually right think, with, yeah. yeah. And, and then like Farewell to Kings and on, moving pictures and whatnot, as you became, your, your artwork seemed to become more and more surreal until it became a very recognizable style. I hope it didn't become recognizable in a predictable sense. I, I like to think that we did keep, you know, as their music evolved, I, I like to think that I dared to evolve. You know, Hold Your Fire was quite unique. Signals was completely 
ridiculous, but it was, it was a very effective um, cover. And it came. It was actually not an easy cover. We, we worked hard on getting that that particular image to come through as, as the solution for the word signals. Um, we can get to that in this conversation if you care to, to address that. But as far as the evolution, yeah, there's definitely the Storm and, and Poe and, and George Hardy at Hypnosis were definitely instrumental to my saying to, to myself. You know, at the time I was airbrushing Bauer hockey skates and I was doing what emerging artists would do. You know, I had an agent and I had, you know, local Toronto ad agencies, you know, approaching me for different projects. And it was all fine, but you know, I, I looked at, at at things like like Hypnosis's work, even the early work that they did, and I thought, you know, it wasn't envy, but it was certainly observation, an observation on my part that that amount of freedom must be beautiful, you know, must be a, a lovely thing. So being young and presumptuous, you you automatically adopt these. You presume that those can be your fate, your own fate, you know, and sometimes belief manifests itself sometimes. So I, you know, I just went after that market. Again, being on a label with Rush didn't hurt and doing Max Webster and Ian Thomas and eventually Rush and Terry Brown's Plateau, you know, all these projects, local projects started approaching me and I eventually found that that I was in fact migrating and, you know, moving in the direction that I had once to hope to move. Um, I'm not sure hypnosis was around during Caress of Steel in 2112, quite frankly. I think those were just, those are just my own graphic solutions for those titles. And I think, no, I don't know. I'm saying, I don't think that, I don't think that those two records had that influence, but no, hemispheres definitely did. Yeah. You nailed it. I think when hemispheres emerged, I was very aware of photo compositing, which was, you know, what they did with the band, you know, the nice with the red balls in the desert and, you know, uh, improbable reality. That's sort of where I, I, I place, you know, two men shaking hands on a back lot in Hollywood, one of whom is on fire, you know, that's, that's pretty brilliant stuff. So I, yeah, I was inspired and, and definitely went, went for that kind of freedom of expression. I want to say that when I say recognizable style, I'm also talking about a glib sense of humor that oh yeah <laughs> that comes out in almost well not all of them but certainly many in that middle period. Yeah, uh, permanent waves. Again, it was you know we were going to in, for that cover we were going to bring in sort of electro you know medical technicians and have each one of them kind of do a brain wave reading and a heartbeat you know sort of a. Uh, get some kind of physiological reading on each of them. And, and I was going to put each one of those graphs on the front cover, one for Daddy, one for Alex, and one for Neil. All very intelligent, all very graphic and simple. And then synchronicity by the police came along with three stripes of color and three photos of each, you know, three strips of imagery. And it just seemed too too similar to what we were trying to do by having three rows of, of representative graphic. So we've they kind of robbed our thunder or we just wisely didn't do it because it was just too close in, in similarity. So it was tabled. Um, and then we, I jokingly said we could have a, a Donna Reed character with a home permanent Tony hairdo walking out of it, you know, a tidal wave with some idiot in the background waving, you know, and uh, Neil and I came up with the impro- improbable political faux pas or, 
you know, the, the faux pas of having printed 65,000 copies of Dewey defeats Truman. So we thought about, you know, the, the wave of political pres- presumption being challenged by the eventual truth, you know. And so even though that was challenged by the lawyers at uh, <laughs> Chicago, the other city, we still... Do you, do you want so, to... Uh... By the way, oh, sorry, that, sorry. That, that, image, that image was described and then kind of dismissed, you know, almost to the point, and I recall sort of Getty saying, yeah, leave your name with the girl at the front door, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. It wasn't intended to sort of, you know, I like the idea. I could see what we would do with that, but it wasn't really the, the keeper. And about two days later, Getty called me and said, you know that uh, image with the title weight and so we like that. And I'm thinking, I remember at the time, not, you know, not having the kind of resources I see today where I can find imagery and get, you know, you know, I can get a great shot of the Galveston, you know, hurricane that yielded that photo. It wasn't as easy as going online and doing a bit of research. We didn't, uh, we didn't have Google back then. So I tracked down the Time Life photographer, Flip Schulke, and um, found a phone number for him, phoned him in Mobile, Alabama, and his wife answered the phone saying, well, he's on the roof right now. He's just got to get a tree out of the attic. And they had just had another hurricane. So I, I eventually spoke to Flip, and he was known for strapping himself to phone poles and waiting for the inclement weather to slam the coasts of Florida and the Gulf. But he was a trip. He, you know, he 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 loved the idea of having his work associated with a, a you know, despite his long and illustrious career with Time and Life, he very generously said, "Yeah, you guys can use a, I have a great shot of a tidal wave hitting Galveston." So. He helped me solve a problem, which I think I would have had trouble bringing to bear if, if I didn't sort of have that fortuitous, you know, contact. Or I would have found a way, but I'm, I'm so grateful for that. On the actual album cover, is the woman's dress walking or coming out of frame as well? Yeah, well, that's intentional. I yeah. have, you know, breaking the frame yeah. is a nice graphic device. I, you know, I like that. That's why I did it with the newspaper on the most current 40th anniversary uh, box set that we did to commemorate uh, permanent waves. Yeah, I like, I like it as a device. You know, every once in a while I'll use it. It's not so easy to do on CDs when you've got a nice half-inch black frame or, you know, a, a reliable trim line because you know, manufacturing manufacturing is imperfect. So if you dare to have a frame around a piece of art, it better be on a 12 and 3 8 inch square. The moment you try to control a frame on a CD booklet, it's that inevitably going to trim it incorrectly and throw it off balance. Do you want to uh, talk about signals a little bit here and how this, how this image of the dog at the, uh, sure. at the hydrant actually had <laughs> something to do yeah, with well, signals? <laughs> well, it, again, we, we went down the whole kind of electroencephalogram kind of route and it was, you know, we were all thinking how cool that would be. And it didn't manifest itself because of the police. We decided not to do it. You know, we had Marconi, Tesla type, you know, imagery, uh, RKO radio, that logo at the beginning of RKO movies. We, we delved into all the things that were, you know, like were, um, uh, representative of the, the word signal. And the more I listened to, this was when we're talking more and more about themes and so on. And 
they mentioned this, the, you know one of the key songs was Subdivisions, and I immediately started seeing. It was way before David Lynch. I was just immediately struck with the idea of the creepiness of suburbia <laughs> and the perfect green lawns and the the uh, keeping up with the Joneses and so on. So I, you know, we we talked about signals, and I thought of you know the Toronto signature red fire hydrant, green lawns. It was more of a graphic reaction on my part and then i thought well how appropriate would it be for a fire dog you know a a dalmatian to be sniffing the signals of the territorial deposits of local dogs so it was really just you're right it was a glib but we hope you know uh graphically effective pun um which tied in nicely to, uh, to subdivisions but it was it was a solution but I do remember Ray, the manager, being in my studio, and I described it to him. I said, "I can, you know, it's going to be very graphic. It's going to be very effective. Black and white Dalmatian sniffing a bright red hydrant against a green lawn." And his face basically—I mean, his face probably went white. <laughs> he honestly, he honestly said, "I don't." I I quote him pretty well by saying, "I don't know what the fuck this has to do with rock and roll," and kind of left my my studio in a bit of a huff and. Speaking of Storm, he had these wonderful books that were coming out through Tiger Press at the time called the Ultimate Album Cover Album. Album, I think they were they were called something like that. And I had bought the first two, of course, because I was curious to see, you know. And I would see people like what's his name, uh, the the painter who did Blues for Allah, uh, Phil Griffin, I think his name was. So I'd see that on a page by itself and. You know, I get a pang of envy thinking, well, I'd like to have a page by myself. And then I turned the page and there was permanent ways as one of four images on a page. So I was not ignored, but I wasn't I wasn't allocated a full page in the first two volumes. But I I, I was in both volumes and I was on several pages. But the, the, the privilege of having a full page only came to pass when I bought the third volume and it was leafing through and found signals. So Storm and his... <laughs> editorial wisdom said he get he gets it likes it and wants it to be seen as a full page so that became ray daniel's christmas present that year well that's terrific as as much as you are tied into the history of rush i do want to get to some other things here and i was just wondering at what point did your album graphics work expand to international artists i know that you had done a lot of canadian artists to a certain point but then how did how did at what point did you go international um well, there was a, I mean, it kind of, it went national in the sense that Dogstar from Vancouver called me in to do a painting, which I did for them. Um, I did a, an early project for Celine on her, one of her very earliest albums called uh, Unisons. And Spencer, I think, Spencer Proffer, who I had, I still have a long, long history with. And we still, we're, I, mean, I just finished working on an illustration for uh, Graham Nash's Our House. It's a book for children, and I've done all the illustrations for that. We just finished doing a book commemorating the 68 comeback special on NBC for Elvis Presley. So we're doing all kinds of different projects, have been for 30-some years. But he had just finished producing something for Quiet Riot back then, and also another band called Kick Axe. They were being released through CBS, and he he was a he had his own label, which was um, distributed by CBS. So he was in Toronto. I met him. I had done the cover for that project, and he he was a big fan of that kind of artwork. And 
when I met him, he, he was the one that invited me down to LA and put me into a really nice house with a convertible Mustang and said, I want you to work on some work, you know? So I did a painting for a band called Isle of Man, a painting for Quiet Riot. And I was, I was eventually introduced to his ex-wife who, who was the, the manager, Trudy Green, who was a manager for David Coverdale's then emerging band called White Snake. And I also did a painting for that. That I did up in um, Toronto. Actually, I began it down in the U.S., but I, I finished it in Toronto. And so that, that was the alliance then that, and he was one of the first people that kind of said, why are you going back to Toronto? You know, I want you to meet John Collada. I want you to meet these people. So um, going to L.A. and meeting with, you know, the people at, at Geffen, that that began that that uh, relationship with Geffen because Sammy Hagar, uh, White Snake, Aerosmith, those bands were all Geffen. Um, can, I'd like to go through a few of a few um, album covers here that are I feel are fairly iconic that you've done. And you reference mm-hmm. you reference one of them early on, the Aerosmith "Get a Grip." How'd that? <laughs> yeah, yeah t- please tell the story behind this. Well, I was I was at a meeting at Geffen, and you know, I, you know, it, it's always a bit of a uh, a tender issue when you're in a meeting with the creative director and the art directors, you know, sometimes they will still, you know, Warners and Geffen would have lots of different art directors and everybody wants to do a white snake or an Aerosmith, you know, including we less welcome outside hirelings, you know, like myself, but you're in a meeting and you're discussing concepts and, you know, it's a, it's a competitive world. You know, I began to realize that I was always a bit, naive about that but i realized that during meetings like that that there then art director was talking very very much in vogue at the time where all those guest commercials and guest print ads were they would have some very cut guy with no shirt and jeans you know putting gas in in some nice collectible 50s era car somewhere on route 66 it was all black and white photography it was beautiful photography and this art director wanted to celebrate the fact that um, Steve and Joe were never in better shape. They'd come out of some pretty dark days with drugs and so on, and they were very fit. They'd been in the gym, and she wanted to have them kind of tightening their belts as a representation of Get a Grip. And I looked, and I said, well, politically, I, I wonder about the politics of that. I mean, yes, I know they are the Lennon and the McCartney of, of Aerosmith, but I wonder if that represents the band appropriately. And the room kind of understood that I had a point. Um, I didn't mean that to be a rude dismissal of her idea. I just want to make sure that we weren't missing an opportunity. And then other people started joking about, you know, there was all kinds of comments made about choking the chicken, forget a grip, you know, and, you know, which needless to say could have been kind of a fun image if it was just someone choking a chicken. But, you know, I, I I knew that nipple rings were pretty in vogue at the time, and I don't know why. I just sort of said, why don't we just have a like a cow udder? We'll brand the name of Aerosmith on the hip of the cow. We'll just put a nipple ring in the cow udder. The room went silent, and I thought I'd blown it. And then suddenly, Kalana said, I like that. I really like that. So I did it as a result of that uh, vote of confidence from John. 
That's fantastic. And uh, how's the cow feel about having the nipple ring inside of its udder? You ask the animal activists that were picketing on Sunset. And I, <laughs> I, kid, you, I kid you not, they didn't, nobody seemed to get the, the fact that this might have been done in Photoshop, you know. <laughs> uh, the same uh, thing happened with, Meg, with Megadeth's babies. There was people up in arms about hanging babies from a clothesline. <laughs> Well, that's the world you work in. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> so, uh, c- can you tell me about the uh, the painting that's the cover of the uh, White Snake Serpent's Albus? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I take credit for for actually naming that album because um, there was no real name for that album, and I don't think it was ever really. I don't know if the spine said Serpent's Albus or not, I forget that, but it was certainly built into the painting itself. And I think it was kind of adopted as the name of the album. I don't quite know why I felt a, a Mandela of sorts, you know, a, a Herald. I think it was when I met David, I sort of thought, yeah, I do know. Uh, meeting David, if you've ever met David, there's a certain kind of, you know, I used to jokingly call him Lord Coverdale because that, that was the, the presence that he had, you know, he would, apart from his sort of Richard Burton timbre in his voice, you know, and, and his, his, his speaking voice. I think he liked pomp and circumstance. He liked, and, and I presume that heraldry would speak well to his nature and his project. And, you know, and those kinds of emblems were, you know, it was a challenge for me. So I designed it, I sketched it, showed it to him. He loved it. And again, I wanted to take as many opportunities, as rare as they have been in my career, because they take so long. But I wanted to do it as a painting. So that's sort of where it came from. You you talked about being in the meeting um, with Geffen talking about Get a Grip and the suggestion that you thought maybe was a little bit uh, politically incorrect with uh, the guys tightening their belt. But then you yeah. did the graphic for Warren's uh, Cherry Pie and... Well, goodness gracious, there can, there's a lot to be said about that, especially where the pie oh. is located on the graphic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, duly noted and uh, nice catch. <laughs> um, no, there's not. I don't discount the fact I wasn't discounting the kind of sexual nature of, you know, a guy tightening his belt and the fact that these guest commercials were, you know, they were they were pretty sexy photography. Um, there was a great image of, um, what's her name? Um, wonderful, uh, act, a wonderful model from Germany. Oh, really Claudia big, Schiffer. Claudia Schiffer. Claudia, yeah. She did one of the ads and she was on her knees. Um, and, and the guy sitting sort of in the frame had a pinstripe suit, sort of like, like the Godfather, but a, you know, a nice $6,000 suit. And this girl's on her knees, and it's Claudia. And so this ad, this ad campaign was definitely kind of, you know, shirtless man on Route 66 filling filling girls, you know, uh, enviable collectible 50s era car, mid century car, you know. Yeah. Um, no, you know, a bit of a bit of. I mean, the fact that I later found out there was a lot of 14 year old boys that like permanent ways simply because the dress was blowing up, you know, and I, I didn't think of it as a, you know, from, from a white panty fetish standpoint, I just knew that a little sex wouldn't hurt, you know, sex does sell if it's done politely. 
Uh, Cherry Pie was definitely a more raucous band, as was Great White, the girl being, you know, literally lifted on a big hook, which I had, you know, forged by a, I had made by a blacksmith down in L.A. So, yeah, I mean, we've had some fun with with the sex, drug, and rock and roll side of, of the of the idiom. So who, where, where are you getting most of your influence from these days? I don't ever, it's a bit like songwriting. I always, that's a good question. And, you know, well, we, I don't really look at album covers anymore. So, you know, I, I don't, first of all, there aren't many to look at. And every once in a while I'll go into, uh, I'll go into iTunes and I'll think, oh, that's a pretty cool image. That's pretty, pretty modern or that's, you know, but I, I try not to, um, it's hard enough with, you know, a finite number of notes in a scale to write a, an original melody, an original song. So the more, if I get too steeped in in the imagery of my peers and so on, I I, I might be tempted to further emulate, you know. And I, 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 again, I admittedly say that the hypnosis people did affect my career trajectory, for sure. Um, but I don't, you know... Uh, I don't emulate Vermeer, but I, I revere his lighting and his technique. Dolly, of course. Dolly was a, a wonderfully, um, I mean, he definitely thought outside the box. I loved his painterly technique and I loved his lighting. I think a lot of time, a lot of my work relies heavily, I think, on strong lighting, I think. Um, but as far you know, I... I I like to think more in a, in a vacuum. If a title moves me, I have to I have to free myself up to respond to the title and not so much to any given style. You know, I might, as a courtesy to a band, say, "Who are your, who are your favorite covers?" You know, but it may not it may not have any effect on what I end up delivering to them. It just gives me a, a peek inside their taste. If they're if they're bands that are new to me and I don't know who they are, you know, I'll certainly ask what they like. But it doesn't. It doesn't affect how I end up responding to the title because that freedom is pretty dear to me. Having a good title, allowing me to kind of seriously or glibly or whimsically respond to that title has always been my f- favorite part of what I do. Okay, and I I'd, I'd just like to end it off um, with something that you brought up and wondered how you're dealing with it these days, which is the uh, the one inch the one inch album graphic that we have to deal with, with regards to uh, the digital service providers and, and does that, has it had an impact on what you are designing? Not really. I know that it serves a project well to be minimal and concise and clean and simple. You know, it does serve, especially with the, the platforms that this artwork has to appear in, but I, I I've actually been pretty lucky. I've been a lot of bands that have been approaching me, you know, even emerging bands, young bands. They they want to do vinyl. You know, they know it's kind of in vogue right now. It's very popular. So I haven't had to dispense with you know all levels of complexity and 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 subtlety because I I, I do get to work to the twelve inch square still. But I'm always mindful of that that journey from twelve to four and a four and three quarter inches square. It has to translate. Like I said, when the door closed on the albums, the window opened on, you know, multi-page CD booklets. So 
but to respond to your question, I'm a little, I don't know. I, I, I tend to just create what I think works. If it doesn't work at four and three quarter inches square, every once in a while, I'm a little disappointed to see that in fact, I may not have, you know, served my client as well as I may have, but it's a cool piece of art and it still stands on its own, but it looks way better at 12 inches still. So I, I try to keep the balance in mind, but I don't let it totally dictate the outcome of what I conceive of or, or work on it as a cover solution. I highly recommend that you take the time to visit HughSime.com to see the wide range of artist styles that Hugh has on display, including album covers, original paintings, graphics, and drawings. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of The Creationist. I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and or review the podcast, and please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email thecreationistpodcast at gmail.com. I can't wait to share Season 3 with you. Your Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Thank you.